Welcome back as we head into podcast number nine now on early American history or pre-colonial America. In the last outline as we or podcast, as we know, we talked about the relationships that the various colonizing powers had with the populations of the Native Americans, as well as the with one another. And then finally, of course, most importantly, is that I stressed in that podcast with the introduction of the slave trade. In this podcast, what we're going to be looking at is the first time that these British colonists in North America are going to start scratching their heads, looking around, squinting, wrinkling their foreheads and saying, wait a minute, something's different now. Something's changing. And I don't know if I like those changes. We're going to see in this podcast the very seeds that are now going to be planted, which will eventually grow up to be one of the most violent wars in world history. So first off, to understand the powers that are in the, the reasons that will eventually impel the British colonists to separate from the empire, we need to understand a couple of things when it comes to the situation on the ground in the mid 1600s. You know, say, wait a minute, Chris, this is a separation that's going to be in the 1770s. Exactly. And if nothing more you get from this podcast, it's exactly that. The founding fathers, the eventual future first army of the United States of America was not bored in the 17, mid 1770s and said, hey, let's get a war going. Let's shake things up a little bit and see what it comes out of it. No. Wars, we're going to find out, separating from Great Britain, for many, was not even on the table as a possibility. For some, it was. And even for those that was, it was not an option to be taken lightly. By the time those first musket balls and first arrows are shot in what eventually becomes known as the American Revolution, the seeds to push them to that point occurred over five generations of British colonists going back to the time period that we're talking about now. First two things to understand is that Great Britain at this time is the strongest naval power as well as the strongest land power. It's clearly in the Western world, arguably in the entire world. London is the powerhouse of economic and social aims and glory. London is where it's at. It is the city to be at. It is the hub of commerce. It is what many Western countries try to aim for in the creation of their major cities. So London, I mean, it, the, it's, it's a place to be. It's the international powerhouse of trade. Great Britain, that's the flag you want to fly. To the point that is at this time that Great Britain is somewhat compared to that empire that, shall we say, folded or phased or fell or moved back in 476 AD called the Roman Empire. And as we're going to find out in later podcasts by the mid-1800s, Great Britain will surpass the Roman Empire in land that's under her flag, 
So first off, as I point out, Great Britain, it, it's the power to be under. If you want any countries flying your, their flag over your homestead, it's Great Britain for several reasons, which we'll talk about in this podcast. But that's the first thing. Great Britain, very, very well respected. The British pound is the most respected, most stable currency in the world. It is the political flag to have hanging over again your homestead. The second part, though, to understand about world economics at this time, and it was part of the reason for the growth of British wealth, is this concept called mercantilism. Mercantilism, the, is an, again, it's an economic, not a political system. And for mercantilism to work, and again, as I say, to get it to work, which is something that by and large never really was ever perfected, because mercantilism by its very nature is somewhat self-defeating. Mercantilism is the idea of the economic system that personal, financial, economic stability, a country's economic stability, is if it produces everything it needs to satisfy its own people, to feed them, to clothe them, to give them everything that they need. If the country by itself can produce that for its people, then it is considered successful. The second part of mercantilism, which is the icing on the cake, is if its own country produces excess goods that other countries around it will seek to purchase. So having your cake in a mercantilist economic philosophy, you produce everything by your own hands. You produce everything for yourself. You need nothing from a foreign power. That's having your cake. Having your cake and eat it, along with the frosting on it, that's where you produce excess of goods that foreigners want to purchase from you. That economic mindset or model is inherently self-defeating and is inherently the cause of political regional stability and international relations. Because think about it. If Great Britain can have that mentality, and it did, then how does France go about it and practice that? In Spain, in Portugal, in the Netherlands, and Russia. If the idea is that you have to produce everything for yourself, then there won't be any international trade. Everybody will have their cake if they truly can produce everything that its own population needs. But in terms of producing excess goods to, to add to one country's wealth, that's not going to happen. And that where, that's where inherently mercantilism is politically destabilizing in the world of international relations. So for mercantilism to work, it has to establish two key regulations. One is to eliminate any kind of foreign influence inside the mother country and the overseas colonies. Two, all goods leaving the colonies must pass through the mother country first. That's how it generates the taxes. If you are a citizen in the mother country in Europe, you see nothing wrong with this model. However, if you're a citizen of that country, but living in an overseas colony, that's where that model begins to become inherently 
shall we say, inconvenient, to say the least. So keep that on the back burner in terms of this idea of mercantilism. Again, quickly, if mercantilism to be successful, Great Britain produces everything it needs for its own self. We know today that the exact opposite is actually more productive. In a classroom of students, I can prove this. When I ask them to raise their hands, raise your hand, I ask them, if everything you ate this morning was 100% produced by your own hands. If you had cereal, you produced the grain in your backyard and did what you need to do to that grain to harvest it to make it ready for human consumption. If you poured milk in that cereal, then you've got the cows and you got the milk from the cows. You pasteurized it in order to use it, if that was your choice to pasteurize it, right? We get the idea. Nobody raises their hands. Nobody raised their hands. Okay, the clothes that you have on you. Raise your hand if you produced everything that you are wearing. So if I go into your house, I'm going to see the area where all your clothing is produced. Nobody raises their hand. They get the idea. But let's go forward a little bit. Raise your hand if anybody rode your bike this morning. Boom, one or two students might raise your hand. Keep that hand up if you made that bike by your own hands. Hands go back down. Cars, most hands go up. Produce your own cars, all hands go down. The idea then, in a mercantilist world at this time, if we could bring back British citizens from this world and bring them and sit them in the classroom and watch that little exercise that I just did, they'd be horrified. They'd sit back and say, wait a minute, how are you even living? You don't produce anything that you need on a daily basis. And we would say, no, we don't. Well, wait a minute, Professor, all standing up there high and mighty with the shirt and tie that don't match. Tell me something. What the heck are you doing to stay alive? Because you didn't raise your hand with any of that either. And I said, no, I'm selling something else in order to get my clothes and in order to get my food and everything else that I and my family needs. What the heck are you selling? I'm selling knowledge. Okay, admittedly, sometimes my students and wife debate that. But yes, I'm selling knowledge to a group of students that needs credit hours in order to acquire knowledge themselves to eventually learn a skill set in which they can go out in the world and sell those skills and or knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, people in the mercantilist world will be pulling their hair out saying, I don't understand that. But that's the way eventually our economies evolved. For a country to try to produce everything it needs was truly pointless. Because some products are easier to be, it's easier to make some products in some countries than it is for other products. So wouldn't it be more convenient that if the climate of Northern Europe was excellent for producing vineyards and other types of what we call winter vegetables, that you produce that and you trade with the Southern countries whose climate lends itself to producing other types of goods, and then you trade. But that is breaks cardinal rule regulation number one. That's not only not eliminating foreign influence, it's inviting foreign influence. So where would these countries have conceived such a ridiculously backwards economic system, you might ask? It's simple, because that's the way it was before we got into the age of nation states. What I mean by that is go back to the ancient world and even the world through the Middle Ages, 
If John and Jane Doe and their three kids were living successfully, that's because John and Jane produced everything that they needed. If they were satisfied in terms of hunger, because they were producing enough food. If they were warm, because their house was adequately built and continually being updated and refortified. If they had good clothing, that's because one or both of the spouses made it. Now, am I trying to imply that trade never happened? No, of course not. But you still had to produce enough of what you were good at making in order to trade with your neighbors. So it's no surprise that if that's the way we humans had been operating going back to 400,000 B.C., is it any surprise that collectively when we come under we come together in the age of the burgeoning or rising nation state that we're going to take that personal economic philosophy and simply apply it to the nation as a whole so even though as i said I, i'm decrying it as backward and outdated etc i'm not knocking the people they were evolving an economic system which had been going back to the origins of human history so again, that's where these two key regulations for mercantilism to work, eliminate foreign influence, number one. Number two, all goods leaving the colonies have to pass through the mother country. Why will that become a problem? Because the colonists in British North America ask, why are we sending you the raw lumber, getting paid a pittance for that lumber? For you to turn that into fine furniture to only ship that back over here to the colonies that I now have to buy. That's not working. So you'll see that there will be the motivation of the British colonists to start looking at the French settlers to the west and north and the Spanish settlers to the south and start engaging in what today we might call black market trading. So that moves us on to from the economic system. Let's look at the political system and see again where the seeds of a future American revolution were sown. From 1492. Europe's first modern contact footprint here in the Americas. As news got back, Columbus, what did you discover? Nothing but question marks, as we discussed in prior podcasts. He came back with very little solid information. He only came back with information that people couldn't understand, which triggered more question marks, but also triggered the wave of what we would call the age of exploration. So as Britain began to try to plant its flag here in North America, they would continually be surprised at just how much land there really was here. As I show my students a map from the middle of the 1500s, middle of the 1500s, we have already been colonizing for a half a century. And it is still believed, looking at that map, that the country of Japan is bigger than the lands in North America, and certainly bigger than Central America. And as we know, the exact opposite is the truth. But that's how long and how slow discovery of the two North and South American continents really was. So as the British colonists began to settle, an attempt to call themselves or carve out a place to call home, between 1492 and 1650, now I'm just sticking now with strictly British influence and occupation in North America here in our modern United States of America, there was very little regulation. Why? Because there wasn't a need for it. There was no demand for it. The population, again, was so spread out 
that having government regulation would have been a waste of time, money, and effort. Believe it or not, we still have places like that here in North America and the United States today. How many of you listening, driving in the car, if you're driving to work, did you leave a home that some of you might be driving back to now that is in an area called unincorporated? If you live in an area that's unincorporated, raise your hands. Well, I didn't do any good. I can't see anybody anyhow. All right. So when you live in an area, for those listeners that are living in an unincorporated area, something's telling me you probably didn't buy there by chance and realize, whoops, I'm in an unincorporated area. No. I would imagine it's quite the opposite, that the people that I know that live in an unincorporated area, that's what drew them there. Living in unincorporated America is kind of like living in British North America before 1650. Those of us that live in an incorporated area, such as I do, I envy you in some ways. Number one, you probably have far more land around your house than I do, and you pay less in taxes than I do. You have, in terms of neighbors, you might need to get out a pair of binoculars to look at your neighbors around you. It's quiet. It's dark at night with no noise pollution. Lot of pluses to living in an unincorporated area. But let's look at the downside now. Now, downside, again, that's only a matter of perspective. Because if there were really significant downsides, you probably wouldn't have bought there. So what might be a negative or a downside to some probably doesn't apply to you homeowners who live there. Again, because I envy you. This isn't a negative to me either. But on the downside, on the negative, we want to call it that, what you don't have is public water. You're not bringing your water in from the main that's going down the street to feed the water to all of the, supply the water to all the neighbors. No, there is no public water supply. Likewise, there's no public sewer system either. Your water is coming in from a well or you're having it brought in and your waste is going out to a septic system somewhere in the both either on either side or in the back of your house. You don't have a public sewer system, but you're also not paying for it either. For those of you that live in an unincorporated area, you know that calling the police or calling the fire department is a gamble in terms of how fast they're going to be able to respond because your area necessarily does not have a local police or fire department. But likewise, you're not being collected taxes on that either, which is the reason your taxes are so low. So people living in unincorporated America today, and these regions are all around throughout the United States still, despite our rising population. Living in unincorporated areas, again, kind of like living in British North America before 1650. But things began to change after 1650. The population continued to grow. And what's more is, unbeknownst to the people, to the British colonists here in North America, the political landscape back in the mother country in Great Britain was also changing, however. With the ascension of James II in Britain in 1685, he sought to change the political makeup of the colonial empire. He wanted to limit the number of town meetings and in some cases eliminate them. He started to levy new taxes on the colonists that they had to pay into the coffers of Great Britain. Now, if you're reading a textbook alongside of this, especially if it's a survey textbook, don't forget to make sure you wake yourself up every five minutes when you're reading a survey textbook in history. But please, let's it, they, 
in these textbooks, James II can be made to look like the villain, can be made to look like a ruthless dictator by simply enacting these taxes. And that's not necessarily fair. James II was reflecting the pressure and the frustration of the Londoners and other citizens of Great Britain who lived in the mother country proper, whose taxes were going up year after year to pay for the maintenance of these overseas colonies. The British citizens living in Great Britain proper were getting fed up with having to financially support their brethren who are living in an overseas colony. Shouldn't they start contributing to the protection and establishment of government that we are providing? That, again, just to try to defend James II, give you a little bit of a balanced viewpoint as to where he found himself when he took the crown in 1685. However, there was enough pressure from the overseas colonial governors to try to turn back some of the procedures and some of the changes that James II was initiating to the point that's, that it oftentimes sparked suspicion of the actual ruling or the reasons for James II's ruling. Parliament was also getting suspicious of James II for a totally different set of political reason, creating turmoil in terms of the governing body in England when it could afford it the least. So Parliament invited James's daughter, just of course to keep the same genetic line on the throne, invited James's daughter Mary and her husband William to replace her father. Upon his hearing about that, he was, in, he was exiled from England. And while again this was a major change in the ruling political body, number one, the dynasty stayed the same, but two, no blood was shed. And that's the reason it's called the Bloodless or Glorious Revolution of 1688. With the ascension of Queen Mary and her husband William, there was a return to political stability for British subjects in Great Britain, as well as a passage for, for a bill of, of a Bill of Rights also for all British citizens. Yes, you heard it. A Bill of Rights will come to revisit this in a little over 100 years. But again, a Bill of Rights for all British citizens within Great Britain. And you've got a question. Well, Chris, did you mean that Bill of Rights, does that apply? Clearly, it applies, of course, for the citizens in England proper. But does that apply also for the colonists in the overseas colonies? And that is the $64,000 question. Because as news of the return of political stability and news of the passage of this Bill of Rights was passed for all English citizens, colonists began to equate the interpretation of that victory from their own shoes, from their own perspective. And that's where a dichotomy, a split began to emerge between this or within this, what you might have thought before listening to this podcast, was nothing more than a simple idea of representation. There's two ways of looking at virtue of representation. The first is virtual. Virtual representation is that Parliament reflected the colonists' interests that was adequate, and therefore that's all that was necessary. 
but that flew in the face of what the colonists had been enjoying before 1658, excuse me, 1688. And that is this idea of actual representation. Colonists, they represent themselves. They don't have some virtual body, some unknown names representing what their needs are here in the overseas colonies. So what type of representation the colonists are asking themselves, do we have going forward? We want to go back to actual. Under the bloodless revolution, William and Mary carries on the tradition started by her father of virtual representation. And therein the split, the seam begins to start becoming visible. And that is going to lead to greater and greater problems down the road. Why then, if these the separation in interpretation of representation if this is starting in the 1680s then why does the american revolution not take place for another almost 100 years that's because everybody both in britain proper as well as in her overseas colonies started to get shall we say distracted by a very real threat and that is of foreign enemies Great Britain, starting in the mid-1600s, will engage in what becomes known as the century of warfare. And I'm not going to get into the minutiae of all these major wars that Great Britain gets involved with, some by her own doing, some being a victim of another power threatening and declaring war on her. But between 1689 and 1760, Great Britain is going to find herself fighting. And if you have a free hand here, if you're driving, I don't suggest you do this, but if you have a free hand, count with me. Great Britain is going to find herself fighting France. She's going to find herself fighting Spain, Portugal, the Native Americans, and even the Dutch. She's going to find herself fighting all of those five powers individually, She's going to find herself fighting those powers when they partner up, as the Spanish and the French will do. She will even find herself fighting them when they all gang up on her. And if you were ever motivated to take notes on this podcast and what you're listening to, now is the time to do it. Because all you have to do is write down five words. And if you can remember five words, you don't even have to bother writing it down. Every time the foreign and native powers ganged up to fight Great Britain, she won all four wars. After a century of warfare, which seemed to finally simmer down in the, in the early 1760s, did Great Britain, after a century, truly not know what it was like to lose a conflict. She did not know what surrendering was. She never had a need for a white flag. Great Britain reinforced the idea that she was invincible, mighty, and all-powerful. As she wielded the world's strongest navy and wielded the powers of the world's strongest army, backed up financially by the world's strongest financials and economic system, Great Britain only won wars.
So I ask you, in just 15 years after the conclusion of the French and Indian War, what possibly could run through a young British officer's mind by the name of George Washington that thinks, despite what just took place and concluded in extremely recent history, France, Spain, Portugal, the Dutch, etc., the Native Americans collectively cannot defeat Great Britain. What went through George Washington's mind that led him to believe that he could win when taking up arms against Great Britain? And that's what we'll discuss in future podcasts. When we come back for the next podcast, we're going to see now how that little seed called representation, how it seemed to be growing up with two shoots, one saying virtual, don't worry, colonists, you're taken care of by parliament. And then that other shoot that says, oh, no, you don't. We have actual representation. We represent ourselves. In the next podcast, we're going to see how that's going to further create political instability inside the British colonies, nonviolently. But then, sadly, how will it eventually will lead to violent civil rebellion? So, thank you for listening to this latest podcast in American history. Go to my website, ceconsola.com. Feel free to email me with any questions or comments or any book recommendations you might have. If you like what was discussed, please leave me a review as well. Have a great day. Thank you.